Good morning. It is so good to be in the house of the Lord, and it's good to have you here. Are you doing well? Good, good. It's good to see everybody. You know, I grew up playing cowboys and Indians. You played cops and robbers. And cowboys robbed banks with masks on. So I just want everybody to know, I feel like I've been stuck up, okay? <laughs> if you're here this morning and you're watching with us online, I'd ask you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5 with me. Matthew, the fifth chapter. Today, in my mind, is a day like no other. Every day we have an opportunity, God gives us an opportunity to learn things, to hear things that change our life in many different ways. Matthew 5, actually chapter 5, 6, and 7 is about the Sermon on the Mount. Today I'm going to talk about some things in chapter 5. But the Sermon on the Mount was probably the most significant discourse ever given. When you stop and you think about Jesus teaching, and today I hope to be able to show you some things that he taught here in Matthew 5 that were quite revolutionary. And I believe that it was and still is revolutionary in the teaching and the message that Jesus was teaching. For several weeks, I have been talking about and used uh, uh, an illustration or talked about the fact that uh, I wish I could almost turn the hard drive off inside of us because we read the scriptures and we talk about so many scriptures. And because we already have a preconceived idea about what the scripture says, we sometimes miss what God's wanting to say to us because the Word of God is alive and what He wants to bring out to us because we think we already know what certain scriptures say when that's not always the case. And today I hope that uh, you'll be able to see some things uh, that, that you haven't seen before and that you're willing to open up your mind and your heart to what He has to say. Perhaps no other teaching of Jesus can help us to uh, compare and help us to understand and to illustrate the attributes and the characteristics of Jesus than looking at one of his sermons, uh, again, the greatest sermon that I think ever preached, and comparing that to his life and what he had to say. The Gospel of Matthew uh, records that after the baptism of Jesus, and he was fasting for 40 days. After this happened, he went about Judea, or Galilee, not Judea, Galilee, healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, touching the afflicted, and doing a lot of things. As Jesus began to do these miracles after this time period, and he began to step into his earthly ministry, his fame spread to the point that 
uh, around the countryside, there were throngs of people who began to follow him and began to, to, to go where he went and follow what he was doing. So desiring to learn some things about this uh, multitudes and things that was there, Jesus, as was the custom in that day, went up on this mountain and, and uh, uh, gave this sermon because you would stand on a mount, so to speak, and speak out so that your voice would carry in those days. And uh, so here he is upon uh, a, a mountain uh, overlooking the Sea of Galilee, and he is teaching a multitude some things that they need to say or they need to hear. Now with this backdrop, if you could today, I'd like for you to just think about Jesus standing there on the Sea of Galilee or on the mount there facing the Sea of Galilee, looking at it. And he's going to say some things that are absolutely revolutionary to what is about to happen. I'd like for you, if you have your Bibles, because there's so much in this, we know that as you look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you uh, uh, realize some of the things that he began to, to teach. Uh, but when you, when you think about the setting with which he was in, there's all kinds of great things that happened and transpired in mountain settings or mountain regions. The Scripture often associates uh, mountains with places of worship and places where you receive a revelation for God. It was on the mountaintop a lot of times where a revelation came or an experience came. If you remember, the Lord commanded Abraham uh, to sacrifice Isaac on top of a mountain. It was, it was at Mount Moriah where uh, God told Abraham to do that, and having uh, uh, Abraham uh, do that sacrifice, uh, he, he understood and was taught the interceding power of the Messiah who came and, and interceded in behalf of that situation and changed things. On Mount Sinai, it was where Moses received the Ten Commandments. It was also on Mount Sinai where he received instructions and ordinances pertaining to the construction of the tabernacle, of how the tabernacle was to be built and designed. Those things happened on a mountain. It was at Mount Carmel where Elijah showed forth the power of God by calling fire down from heaven. So each of these mountains were there and acted as what I would call a bridge, so to speak, to bring heaven closer to earth. If you and I could really understand Jesus on this mountain at the Sea of Galilee, beautiful setting, and what I believe he was trying to do was bring heaven closer to earth. You know, Jesus' sermon begins with what we know as the Beatitudes. Through the years, when you talk about the Beatitudes and you look at the Beatitudes, the word Beatitude is a word that simply means blessed or blessed. When we talk about uh, uh, the Beatitudes, you're talking about blessed, prosperous, and abundant. Those, is, those are the words that blessed means, or Beatitudes means. It means blessed, it means prosperous, and it means abundant. In Jesus' teaching here, these Beatitudes... 
He's doing something and you've got to understand that, it, that what he's doing in teaching these Beatitudes in this sermon with the people that's following him, he is doing something that is significantly different than the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments have been given by Moses and they were under the law in the setting this day of all of the people who were following Jesus and we have to assume that the people who were following Jesus being a multitude were people from all walks of life. They were from every different type of city, uh, setting and situation and circumstance. They followed him because they realized that he had something to say that was different. And what he had to say here in this, of, of giving, instead of giving them a list of thou shalt nots, which is what the, the uh, Ten Commandments was, Jesus gives them a list of things that we are to become. Now think about that for a moment. All they know is the Ten Commandments. All they know is the law. And Jesus here comes doing miracles, signs and wonders and miracles, and the people begin to follow Him. They begin to realize there's something different about this guy. And this guy comes on the scene, and He begins to teach this Sermon on the Mount, and He's saying something totally different than what they had heard. One of the reasons why I wish I could change our hard drive is because I believe that we have so much religion in us at times that we've programmed our minds to think a certain way that when God wants to get our attention or do something different, it's almost like He has to send a pandemic or something crazy along to say, hey, I need your attention. I'm not theologically trying to say he sent this, so don't think that's what I'm saying. I'm just saying sometimes in the middle of some of the bad situations that we face in life, he speaks clearly to us or we hear. Now think about this. Instead of giving the thou shalt nots, instead of talking about ten commandments, he starts giving a list of things that we are to become. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking. He uses phrases like, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now remember the word blessed here means prosperous, abundant, blessed. That's what he's talking about. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Then he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Each of these things that he's talking about when he begins to teach the Beatitudes, he's saying things to the people, and he's saying it in a way that it's who the person is. He's not giving a list of do's and don'ts. He isn't saying don't do this and don't do that. He isn't saying, he's saying, if you're merciful, you will obtain mercy. If you're a peacemaker, you're going to be called a child of God. Jesus is making some statements here. Blessed are the merciful. Let me ask you a question. How does one become merciful? Can I, from a one-time event, come to church one day, hear the preacher preach on being merciful and decide 
I want to be merciful, and in one day I receive merciful, and it happens in my life, and from that day forward I'm a merciful person. I don't think that's how it works. I don't think how this, this is how that happens. I don't think it's a one-time event that you can check off your list once it's incompleted. And so many of us, we want to have a relationship with God where we do this, 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 and this. I've gone to church. I've paid my tithes. I've said my prayers. I've done what I'm supposed to do. And then think because we've done our do's and our don'ts, we've got our checklist, and therefore everything's all right with God. Well, Jesus is coming along, and he's saying, look, you're going to have to learn how to be merciful if you want to obtain mercy. You're going to have to learn how to be a peacemaker if you're going to be a child of God. Here, I've said it once, I want to say it again. One of the reasons that the teachings of Jesus here in this Sermon on the Mount are so revolutionary is he was teaching them from a different perspective than he had ever taught them before or things he had ever said before. Jesus, in essence here, breaks every preceded concept that they have about what it means to be prosperous, what it means to be blessed. Jesus is coming along and they think that prosperity and blessing has to do with obtaining wealth, obtaining power, and obtaining, obtaining prestige. They believe that those things are what's happening and taking place. And Jesus comes along and says, that's not how it happens. This is how it happens. He teaches that if prosperity and blessing is through obtaining wealth and power, you don't know what prosperity and blessing is. You don't know what's going on. One of the things that he's even trying to get across here is that it's not through strict obedience to the rules and the regulations. It's not through strict obedience to the law. The scribes and the Pharisees of that day, they understood that in order to be blessed, in order to be prosperous, in order to be abundant, you would follow the law. And those of who followed the law were the ones who were blessed and prosperous. But Jesus is saying... It's through becoming meek. Jesus is saying it's through becoming humble. Jesus is saying it's hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Jesus is saying that being prosperous is being a peacemaker. In short, the state of being blessed is about being who you really are, not just what you do. I think I've told you this before, but in the bathroom at our house, behind the commode, there's a little shelf, and on that shelf there is a little plaque there that says, blessed is not who you are or what you have, it's who you have at your side. wonder who put that there. Blessed is who you have at your side. One of the things that I believe the Beatitudes are teaching us is we are blessed, we are prosperous, we have abundance 
because the Lord Jesus Christ wants to be at our side. He wants to be with us everywhere you, we go. He wants to walk with us and talk with us and be a part of our lives every day of our lives. So the state of being blessed is about being who we really are, not just in what we do. Next in this Beatitudes sermon that Jesus is teaching on this Sermon on the Mount, the Lord teaches that as we work towards the life of being blessed, in you being blessed, part of the reason that you're being blessed is because you are being commissioned to bless others. Now follow me if you would. I feel like I'm, I'm rushing and I feel like I'm trying to get through and I want, I want you to get this point. Jesus comes, he's teaching the greatest sermon that ever taught. He's talking to them about the Beatitudes and he's telling certain things they need to be, not just what they do. And then he turns around in the middle of this as he begins this lesson and begins to teach them all the things they should do. And then he says, if you're going to have these things, you're going to have to do these things to other people. You're going to have to give them to others. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You've got to be this to other people. We are commissioned by God to bless the lives of other people. How does he do that? How does he teach us that? Well, he talks about it in two different scenarios here in this Sermon on the Mount. He talks about salt and he talks about light. He says that through salt and light, you have become, you're the salt, you're the light. You are the ones that are flavoring the world. Salt in his day was an extremely significant thing. Salt was not only used to bring flavor and spices, but it was even more importantly used as a preservative. The world of that day wasn't, didn't have modern refrigeration like we have today, and so meats could only be preserved for later seasons by using salt to preserve them. Additionally, salt was a part of every sacrifice that was offered to the Lord, the sacrifice symbolizing that the everlasting nature of the covenant, that the salt was a part of that symbolic culture of that day. So Jesus here is saying, you are the salt. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing. I'm wondering, I'm asking the question today, is God saying to us today, I want my children, I want my family, I want my church to be salt to the world. Then the second thing that he uses here is light. In Matthew 5, verse 15 he states, makes this statement. He says, Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket or a bushel, but, it, but on a lampstand and is given light to all who are in the house. Some of the translations talk about a candle. The word candle, the word light that is here, is actually in the Greek, it's talking about an oil lamp because that's what they used in that day. And that oil lamp 
was there and they used an oil lamp to produce light and the light in the home was that of, an, of, of a lamp and the original word for bushel or basket is a vessel that you could use to extinguish the light that was in this oil lamp. So he's saying your life should be a light to others but he's also saying that we should not smother the light that we have or put our light out for any reason. Guys, I don't know about you, but I want my light to shine for Jesus. I want my salt to have savor or flavor. I want to be able to preserve people's lives and their walk with what we have in our walk with God. You see, both of these parables are showing us how true discipleship can be. And our lives, by using this illustration of being salt and light, is something that we should have to influence others. Bringing flavor and preser pre preservation and giving light to those who are out here lost in darkness. You know, Jesus is teaching here, and then in teaching these things, he said, Not, don't think that I've come here to destroy the law and the prophets, but I've come to fulfill. Fulfill here does not mean to do away with. He didn't come to do away with the law and prophets, but instead it means to complete or to bring to fullness. Jesus fulfilled the law, at least in part, by showing through his teachings and his own example the true purpose behind the law. In essence, what Jesus is trying to do here is he helps his listeners to understand that obedience is not the, un, the, the ultimate package here. Think with me for just a moment. Jesus, in his message here, is trying to say something, and he's saying in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those, uh, blessed, uh, are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful. He's going through all these discourses, and then he's saying, you're salt, and then he's saying, you're light, and he's giving all of these things. And, and you know, you begin reading through this, and you begin to, to, to try to understand what is it, Jesus that are you are really trying to say to us that we are to do, and if it's about being, not doing, what are we supposed to be? Anybody have any idea what I believe he's teaching here that we should be? I believe he's given characteristics of how we can be like him. How we can be like God. Jesus demonstrated this by giving five examples from the law, each of them beginning with, you have heard it said by them of old, but I say to you. I want you to notice, I've preached on this before, this particular aspect of this, but if you'll get your Bible and you look at verse 21 and 22, 21 says, you have heard it said, and then 22 says, but I say unto you. Down in verse 27, he says, You have heard it said, 
And then in verse 28, he says, but I say to you. In verse 33, he says again, you have heard it was said. And then in verse 34, he says, but I say unto you. Verse 38, he says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, verse 39. Verse 43, you have heard it said. And then in verse 44, he says, but I say unto you. Jesus was taking what had been, they had heard and what they knew, and he said, you've heard that it was said, but I'm saying to you something totally different. And he gives five examples here. He starts in one of them. I could talk about all of them. The time I won't, but he starts in one of them here, and he says, the teaching about killing and committing adultery. Jesus doesn't say that these laws have been done away with, but instead what he actually does intensifies them. He starts talking about murder, and he says, you may never kill somebody, but in your heart you want to murder somebody, and he says, you've done it. It's in your heart. It's something that's there. He says, you may not commit adultery, but if you look on a woman to lust and desire her and want her, he's using an illustration and saying, he says, they say unto you, this is what happens, but I say unto you, you can do these things in a different way. He's intensifying these things. So he's teaching them that even if they think evil thoughts, in some ways, it's like committing the very same acts. Why is this the case? Well, again, the ultimate purpose of what Jesus is trying to do in this scenario is not just obedience, but he's trying to get across to us that we are to become like the Heavenly Father. Guys, please listen to me today. If you're you're watching, listen to me when I make this statement to you. It's not in the do's and the don'ts. It's in the becoming. You can do all the right things, but what God's wanting you to do is to become like He made you to become. He wants you to become a brother or a sister just like Jesus. He wants you to behave like you have been born of the Spirit of God. He wants you to live in such a way that the life of God lives and exudes from you. Another law that Jesus quotes in this scenario that we're in here is he quotes this, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If you'll look there at verse 38 of Matthew chapter 5, he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then he says, but I tell you. What he's saying here is in our modern world, we assume that Jesus wants this to be interpreted literally. And we take this and say, well, you know, if somebody does this to you, you have the right to do it to them. If you do this, this is what's going to happen to you. And we take this literally, meaning that you would actually cut out someone's eye if they blinded you. It's an eye for an eye. It's a tooth for a tooth. If somebody does something to you, you can do something back to them. And that's how much of our world thinks. And there's much of our world thinks that's what Jesus is saying. But in ancient times, this wasn't how this was to be interpreted. It was interpreted differently. In fact, several sources teach that this is 
that it's, it's as much of a recompense as it is vengeance. In other words, this is what happens when certain things happen. For example, if you in a rage injure a carpenter, and let's just say that carpenter is blind, what they taught in that day was if you blinded someone and they can no longer earn their livelihood, then you ought to be responsible enough to help that person take care of his family if you did something. He's trying to teach something in a different scenario about how we should do things. It's not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, just, just you know, in that particular context. I wish our justice system today would understand a little bit of the responsibility. If you do something to somebody, you ought to be responsible for taking care of what they need. Jesus next teaches here that instead of seeking recompense for an eye for an eye, we need to go that extra mile. We need to do the above and beyond thing. You know, back in Jesus' day, the Roman soldier were allowed to force a Jew to help them carry their equipment for up to one mile. That was a context of that statement that Jesus was making. The Roman soldier could look at somebody and say, carry my equipment for a mile. And Jesus is saying in this context, if they ask you to carry it a mile, carry it two miles. Don't just do what's obligated or what's expected of you. Go above and beyond to do more. So Jesus is teaching that even if your enemy compels you to do something, even if it's against our will, we are to show true service by giving them more than what they even ask. The Lord concludes these five statements with probably the most significant teaching that I believe is in this chapter. In verse 43 and verse 44, I want to read it to you. He says, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. There's probably no other statement, in my opinion, in this gospel than this statement right here that demonstrates the true character of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, you're not just good to those who are good to you, you're good to your enemies. You don't just love people who love you, you love those no matter who they are. If you'll remember when betrayed by Judas and arrested by the temple priest in Gethsemane, what's Jesus do? Peter gets angry, cuts the ear off of the soldier, and the very soldier that's come to arrest Jesus, Jesus heals him. Think about that. This is the guy who come to arrest Jesus. He comes, Peter gets all upset, grabs his sword, cuts the guy's ear off, and Jesus picks the ear up, puts it back on his head, and heals the guy who is coming to get him. When he's on the cross... Suffering beyond comprehension, if we could just think about Jesus is on there saying, Father, forgive them. Forgive those who have caused him such pain. You know, 
probably the most significant of all. He goes on in this discourse and he talks about being perfect. He talks about a state of perfection. Most of us, we're in a state where we understand that we just want to look at certain things and talk about certain things and we, we, we decide that, you know, I'll never be perfect. We've got a whole religious group that believe that they're sinners. They believe that they're unrighteous. They believe that they uh, uh, can't live right. They don't believe that God lives on the inside of them. They just say, I'm sinners. They don't understand that you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. They don't understand that Scripture calls us saints, that we're children of God, we're in the family of God, that all the attributes of Jesus want to reside inside of us, that, that His Spirit lives on the inside of us. But here he comes to this place and he begins to close this, this chapter 5. And, and I'll read that statement to you here in just a moment. But, but, but here he is. He's quickly forgiving everybody on the cross. He heals the guy who, who had uh, uh, come to arrest him. He's trying to keep us on a path of discipleship. Jesus is saying, be this way, be that way. Be like this. Be like me. It's not just in what you do and don't do. It's what you become. And you know, when I read this, I can look at it and I can look at you and I can say, you know what? It almost is impossible for us to be what it appears that God has called us to be. God has called us to be like Him. I was trying to preach this last week. Same message, different scriptures, different texts, but it's the same message. We want to use our faith for a new car, for a right kind of home, for healing. And we don't use our faith to believe that the Holy Spirit can come inside of us and live inside of us and that we have the ability to live and be everything God designed us to be. Let me tell you something. He made us in His image and in His likeness. And when Jesus Christ returns, we're going to be just like Him. I'm sorry, I can't believe that I'm just a sinner. I believe that God has called us, that He sent apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to perfect saints to make saints be able to minister everything that Jesus can minister. You know, in verse 48, look at that. Chapter 5, verse 48, he says this, Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Most of us read that and we're thinking there is absolutely no way. I can be perfect like he is. Well, let me ask you, why would Jesus be preaching this? Why would he be saying this if he didn't want us to be able to have this? See, perfection means to become complete or whole. 
This perfection is more of a final destination of where we're going to be when Jesus returns. We're going to be like Him, but it is the movement in the right direction that's important here. If we're not believing we can be like Jesus, if we're not believing we were created in His image, in His likeness, then we're going to keep on believing that circumstances and situations arise where we as Christians don't know what to do. And we're always behind and we don't always know where to go or how to act or what to do. When Jesus is saying, I want to do special things through you and in you. As Jesus taught from the mount here at the Sea of Galilee, He truly bridged heaven and earth, giving us a glimpse of what was going on in the eternities. And through His message, He taught us that we should be not just merely obedient, but instead that we could become focused on lifting up, serving, and becoming a light to the world around us. Years ago, I preached a sermon about a man who designed a building and he built the building so big that it had a flat roof. The roof was flat and in that time, they realized that in the designing of this building that the water got on there and the building began to sag because as it would rain, the water would come and they didn't have a way designed, they thought they had adequate gutters and, and downspouts on there to, 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 to get everything off, but it was raining so much and it rained that the, the, the weight of all of that coming down on that was about to collapse the building. And all of a sudden, a guy came up with an ability to know how to go in and design a downspout that would be big enough and large in the gutter system, large enough to keep everything that was on there flowing down on the ground. Jesus, in this same discourse, taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wants us to have the will of heaven and the will of the Father done on this earth. And and somebody began to talk about this building and what was going on, and he said, Man, those, those downspouts worked. He said, No, they didn't work. They functioned. They did what they were designed to do. When they built this building, what they did was they cut off the ability for the gutters and the roof and that structure to get into the downspout. And when they didn't have that part open, all we had to do was open it up for what was there to go and the downspouts didn't work at all. They only functioned doing what they were designed to do. I'm looking at you today and I'm saying to you that you were designed to be God's salt to the earth. You were designed to be God's light to the earth. That you were designed to be God's representative on planet earth. And that Jesus has brothers and sisters walking the planet today. That we've got to get in a place and alignment where everything that heaven has can be flown flowed down through us into the world. The way He's going to love the world is to love the world through us. The way He's going to care for the world is to care for the world through us. As we trust His grace and we trust His ability to do in us what it needs to be done, 
It is His perfection that will ultimately make us complete and whole. Guys, listen to me. I believe that the power of the Holy Spirit can change who you are, what you are, and how you think if you will open up your heart and your mind to believe that Jesus Christ can live through you, you can be salt and light in a dark world. Let's pray. Father, help us today to reach our world around us. Help us today to love like you desire us to love. Help us today, Lord Jesus, to function the way you made us to function. Lord, you called us to function in your image, in your likeness, in your strength, in your power, in your wisdom. You called and designed us to be everything that you placed us on this earth to be. So, dear Lord Jesus, I ask you to help us. Help us, Lord, to not put out our light and to not do anything that would hinder us from being a salt, preservative, flavoring influence in our world. I thank you for our love, your love and your power in us. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for watching us. We appreciate you. God bless you. Hope to see you soon.